Hello and welcome to JLGB Virtual We Are Live. As part of JLGB's recent adjustments to the coronavirus lockdown, we have been helping parents and young people stay entertained and active all online. In order to adapt our delivery to the government restrictions, on the 23rd of March, we launched JLGB Virtual, which runs every Monday to Thursday evening. This is our way of ensuring that we can continue to delight, inform and entertain young people so that they can have some fun, learn new skills and make a difference. Sessions include skills like magic, upcycling and coding. Physical activities and the focus of this podcast series, interviews with expert speakers from a range of backgrounds, including famous actors, social entrepreneurs, government ministers and many more. These interviews are run by young people like myself. So if you have any questions or want to get involved, please reach out to us on any social media platform. Just look for JLGBHQ and message us. We have so many exciting guests for you to listen to and we hope you'll join us live very soon. For now though, join us through our catalogue of guests. Today's guest is the legendary Disney and Broadway composer, Alan Menken. Sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy. Who could have believed that when we launched JLGB Virtual back 365 days ago, we'd still be here in lockdown one year later, and that it would be the backdrop in which JLGB would mark its 125th anniversary. And as we look back now, one year later, with over 100 amazing guests and episodes, not only were we finalists in the Children and Young People Now Awards, and not only did JLGB Virtual win the JVN Awards for Innovation during COVID-19, but this was also the year that Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, agreed to become our patron. But as if that wasn't enough, tonight we could not have a more fitting guest than the man who wrote the soundtrack to our lives. Our incredible special guest this evening is none other than the multi-award winning legendary composer, Alan Mengen. Whilst you may not know his name when you first hear it, you will soon realise that he's the man who wrote the songs and music of some of the most incredible movies and musicals ever made, including Little Shop of Horrors, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Enchanted, Tangled, Sister Act and Newsies. Born in Manhattan, Alan developed an interest in music at an early age, taking piano and violin lessons. Alan went on later to study musicology at the NYU and then specialised in musical theatre at the BMI Lehman Engel Musical Theatre Workshop, where he was mentored by the great Lehman Engel himself, a legendary composer and conductor of Broadway musicals, film and television in the 1950s and 60s. Alongside his writing career, the late grey Howard Ashman, Alan's career took off after writing the off-Broadway smash hit musical Little Shop of Horrors. Together, they became key figures in the Disney Renaissance, creating a soundtrack for everyone's absolute favourite Disney musicals of all time, including The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. Alan has won eight Academy Awards, making him one of the most prolific Oscar winners ever. He also has 11 Grammy Awards, a Tony Award and a Daytime Emmy Award, among many other honours. In July of 2020, he became one of just 16 people to have achieved the legendary EGOT status, 
having won an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar and Tony. And if that wasn't enough, Alan received his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2010. We are so honoured and privileged that Alan has found the time to speak to us this evening, despite his very busy schedule. So, without further ado, Madam and Monsieur, it is with deepest pride and greatest pleasure we welcome you tonight. And now we invite you to relax. Let us pull up a chair as JLGB Virtual proudly presents, live all the way from New York, tonight's incredibly special guest. It's Alan Menken. Welcome, Alan. How are you? I'm great. After that intro, I feel like I should be going into... Sorry? How have you been coping through lockdown? Oh, how have I been coping? I, uh, okay, I, we, uh, I live about an hour north of New York. Um, actually, maybe an hour and a quarter north. Um, it's beautiful up here. I have a studio and um, I have a staff that keeps a distance. I'm able to work on many projects remotely. Um, so life has been okay. I have, I have really no complaints personally. It's just what a you know what a tragic and tough year it's been for so many people but of um, course okay of course and we mentioned that earlier on the people that lost their lives um such a tragedy that we are going through this at the moment um but we are so pleased to have you here tonight on our jlgb virtual program we've been boosting positivity and keeping children and their families active and healthy and entertained now for 52 weeks one year ago today since the first lockdown began here in March in the UK. Unbelievably, we've broadcast over 100 episodes and been viewed online by nearly 3 million people, thanks to the help of a special guest like you every evening. So what made you say yes and why was it important for you to join us tonight? Well, it sounds like a, a great organization um, and good people, smart people. I, uh, you know, and this is, during this time, the, these Zoom get-togethers have become, um, you know, a, a very much a new tradition, and um, you know, and it's, it's. I don't have to get into a car. I don't have to <laughs> get onto a plane. I can just basically stop my work on my, my projects and turn this way and talk to you guys. So it's, it's great. It's it's a it's a real pleasure, and I love talking to young people and to, uh, to fans and just discussing, you know my thoughts about about entertainment business and my work and my career and and writing musicals and things like that so i'm happy to be here well i think on behalf of all young people families and every single person watching tonight we are incredibly incredibly privileged to have you here and we are so honored as well um and as you will have heard we are all about acts of kindness here at jlgb and we always ask our guests what they've been doing to help others during the difficult time and of course, you being here tonight with us is a massive act of kindness in itself. But is there a particular personal act of kindness that you've been doing to help others during this pandemic? I hear that you've held quite a few virtual benefits this last year. Yeah, there's been a lot of um, a lot of this, a lot of being being there and available for people. There's been a lot of financial contributions to uh, you know pivotal causes. Um, uh, oh, uh, I, I have a large staff that I've really wanted to keep employed, even if they couldn't come in. 
um, and making sure that people's, you know, have their have their health insurance and you know, it's all acts of kindness start close to home. And that's how you treat the people who are next to you and, and people who are attached to you is most pivotal. And then of course, reaching out as far as you can as well. Um, so I, you know, we all try to do our, our bit. Definitely. And I think we've all learned that lesson a lot during this, during this pandemic. Um, so let's go back to the very beginning then, if I may, can you tell us a bit about your childhood and growing up? Did you have a youth opportunity like JLGB that you were involved in that helped shape you? And also, is it true that you had to choose between having music lessons or having a bar mitzvah? <laughs> well, in a way, yes. Um, I, uh, I was taking piano lessons and violin lessons. Um, and I, I was a very ADD kid or ADHD, whatever you call it, you know, and um, had a hard time concentrating at school and um my parents said why don't you know they encouraged me to make a choice and i chose music um i mean in the years that followed i did you know actually learn the haftorah and i did study to a degree but um i grew up in a very reformed tradition and um i remember the bar mitzvah services used to start with Today we become bar mitzvah. Mitzvah is a Hebrew word. It means the good we do for others. And it was, you know, um, to be honest, I felt that I was getting more out of my out of my music training. And, in, in, you know, in retrospect, I think it probably paid off. Now, that said, I actually hated to practice. Um, I was I would I would learn the first few bars of something and then I would just make up my own Beethoven sonata or my own Bartok microcosmos or whatever it was by ear, thinking I was just faking it. Um, and when the teacher said, Alan's not learning these pieces, and my parents said, Well, he's playing for an hour, then they said, I think we should encourage this. And so um, a lot of my you know, my practicing and a lot of the work I did was actually more preparatory for me becoming a composer. Definitely. I think a lot of people would be very grateful and are very grateful that you chose that decision to do those music lessons because of the, the joy you've provided all of us um, all the time, really. Um, so was music always on the cards for you? You mentioned your piano and violin lessons. Um, I hear you were under a lot of pressure to be a dentist. Is there any connection to this and you killing the evil dentist in the little shop of horrors. Actually, there is. Um, all the men in my family were dentists. My grandfather um, was a dentist, um, had an, a, a, an office in Harlem. Uh, my father was a dentist. My father's brother was a dentist and then an orthodontist. My mother's sister's husband was a dentist. My father's sister's husband was a dentist. My cousins are dentists. Um, and I thought, well, I guess this is, I guess this is what I'll have to do. But I was, had no interest in actually all of the courses and all of the work that would lead to becoming a dentist, much less an interest in exploring the wonder of people's, people's teeth. Um, uh, so uh, it, it was very clear, especially when I got to college that, you know, I was not going to become a dentist. I, I, I went to college, went to NYU as a pre-med and that fell by the wayside pretty quickly. And I, um, I began just writing incessantly. And 
um, when I went to college, it was, the, you know, the, the, the years of Bob Dylan and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And so that plus growing up in a family that loved musical theater, um, I drew and I loved classical music. So I drew on all these different sources. Um, and of course, you know, when I when I finished college, really, and I had to make a living besides the jobs I had, all the influences that came into me in those first 20 years or 21 years began to work their way into all the influences that became uh, my career. Um, but yes, I, the world is, I think, very fortunate that I did not become a dentist. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I think we all appreciate the work that you've done. And unless you... Oh, 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 sorry. Second part of your question. Sorry, sorry. So the second part of your question, my dad, as a dentist, was the president of the New York chapter of the American Analgesia Society, a society of dentists that promote the use of nitrous oxide as safe. So when Howard Ashburn and I were trying to figure out how Seymour would commit the first murder in Little, Little Shop, in the movie, Seymour, I think, takes a, a bottle and he's frustrated, he throws a bottle off a bridge and it hits a bum on the head and he, and he ends up feeding the bum to Audrey too. We didn't think that would necessarily work on stage. I said, well, how about, because I knew you know, my dad, you know, his, his expertise in nitrous oxide, how about we have the dentist like to use nitrous oxide, but he actually uses it for himself to enhance his, his sadistic pleasures in creating pain. Howard thought that was hilarious. And so, yes, my father, in, in, on that one detail, he did in fact very much influence um, the choice. Very nice, thank you for sharing that. Um, so you've heard my voice for a little bit now, so we're going to go over to some audience questions because we have loads of people here dying to ask you a question. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so first up we have uh, Sydney Mittelman. Hi. Hi, how are you? Hi. I'm good, thank you, how are you? I'm good. It's an absolute honour to be able to ask you a question. I'm a huge fan of all your work and music, Beauty and the Beast, everything. Um, so my question is about The Little Mermaid. So your first major Disney movie, which would begin a new Disney renaissance, was The Little Mermaid. As well as writing the lyrics and music with Howard Ashman, this was your first chance to write an entire film score. So how did that come about and how did you go about creating the underwater feel and Caribbean music tone to the movie? And it seems unbelievable, but is it true to Walt Disney World or is it make it into the film? Okay, well, yeah, a lot of questions there. So um, when we did Little Shop of Horrors, um, the movie of Little Shop of Horrors, the, the movie came out and I didn't write the underscore. There was, but I did all of the music, obviously for the songs, all of the interstitial music in the scenes, they were written for the stage. Um, and the, the Golden Globe nominations came out and Little Shop was nominated for best score for a man named Miles Goodman, who wrote nine minutes of adaptation music for, for Little Shop. I wasn't eligible because my music had been written for the stage. So the only thing I was eligible for was the new song, which was Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. So when we came around to doing Little Mermaid, it was Howard who said, Alan, you should write the score to this. 
Um, and I said, but I, I don't know how to do that. He said, well, you'll learn and they'll help. And I was helped to learn, you know, the craft of writing a, a film score. And, um, and it was an amazing experience. The, the idea that I won an Oscar for that very first film score is crazy because um, it's actually a very simple, very unsophisticated score, but I guess it was sort of perfect for, for, that, um, for that story. As far as the vocabulary of, of, um, of Little Mermaid, we started first of all with, you know, just the water flowing and meeting Ariel. And remember, just feeling the moving figure, which of course became, look at the stuff, isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't you think I'm the girl, girl who has everything? So that was one set of colors. Then um, initially, Sebastian was a English, a stuffy English crab and Howard thought that's not a lot of fun. So how about we make him a Caribbean crab because at that time, reggae and um, ska and certainly Calypso was very popular. So in creating that character of Sebastian to be um, Caribbean, it opened up so much of the movie and it opened us up to Calypso. Very much like a would you play on a steel drum or uh... you see her. all of those influenced and then chef louis we bring in some french music hall with les poissons les poissons how i love les poissons um and so and of course a sea shanty so it's a very eclectic mix of influences in the score um and uh, it was very simple, very, very, I'd like to say musically primary colors. And it really appealed to people. People were hungry for the return of, of classic Disney animation. And we had, I guess, just the right tone for that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Sydney. Um, so is it true then, Alan, that part of your world almost didn't make it into the film? Well, part of your role, yeah, it was in the film, but then at one of the early screenings, you know, at, for animation especially, you sit in the back of the theater when you have previews and you watch preview audience, which includes a lot of kids, clearly. Um, and you watch, but you know, when the kids sort of get squirmy and oh, and they have, I have to go to the bathroom, whatever it is, when they, you know, when their interest flags, you're in trouble. And sure enough, on part of your world, they got antsy and um and so uh, our the the man who was sort of the the head of animation at the time uh, jeffrey katzenberg suggested yeah we should cut that song and howard was we know from writing musicals that a song like that is essential for for fueling the arc of of our protagonist but how do we keep it in there and we realized that ariel's just singing this song about about how she wants to be up there but we never focus on who's listening to her. And Sebastian is listening to her. And not only is he listening, he's horrified because he knows that being up there is dangerous. So when we did, we added these cutaways and a wonderful animator, um, why am I blanking on his name? Oh my God. Let's see, senior moment. Um, 
uh, decided we, we have to see we have to see um, uh, Sebastian. So seeing Sebastian while she sang made all the difference and it kept the audience riveted. Well, I think Glenn Kelly, uh, Glenn, uh, uh, Glenn Keane, I apologize. Glenn, the wonderful Glenn Keane, brilliant. There you go. I think everyone would be very grateful that that song was kept in. Yeah. Um, so we have another question. This is from another Sydney, a different Sydney. This is Sydney Miller. Okay. Hi. Hi, Sydney. Um, so do you mind telling us a little bit more about the music from Beauty and the Beast? Um, there seems to be a little bit of a connection between songs like the prologue, Belle, Beauty and the Beast and Transformation. So at what stage do you kind of know that it all fits together? And what were you building? What were the building blocks to create such a masterpiece? And uh, also, if you don't mind me asking, is it true that Angela Lansbury recorded her vocals to Beauty and the Beast in one take? Well, we could have taken that one take and used it. So I'll go I'll do, I'll do that one first. Um, Angela almost didn't do the movie, by the way. She heard the, the initial demo that I had done, which was very, uh, you know, it was all this time, true as it can be. And she said, well, I don't think it's for me, dear. I, it's, I don't really sing. And I said, oh, you know, I asked her, which demo did you play for Angela? I said, oh, yours, of course. I said, no, no, play them Howard's. Howard was much more, it's all this time. True, it's much more in character, much more half-spoken. Angela said, oh, I get it. And she was in. Um, when it came to the day of the recording session, Angela came in very prepared. We had already had, had rehearsed the orchestra. Angela went into the ISO booth and sang it and it was just magic. But, you know, being uh, responsible, we got many other takes from her and had, had um, more to choose from just in case. As far as the, the, the palette for Beauty and the Beast, Beauty and the Beast clearly is much closer to tr the traditional world of Walt of early Walt Disney, which is a very sort of um, Bavarian, German, sort of uh, uh, countryside, um, uh, it's a classic fairy tale um, world. So we drew on a lot of those those colors from, from the classical music, from um, operetta, um, and from French musical. All of those um, those different colors. So you have um, classical in the nature. There goes a baker with his tray of life always, same old bread and rolls to sell every morning just the same. That's one set of colors, very Mozartian, very classical, very European, um, German. Uh, it's of the of the time and of, of the of the fairy tale world. Then you have the world of um, Maurice Chevalier and the, and the wonderful, you know, we get to the enchanted object. <laughs> be our guest, be our guest, put our servants in a desk, fry a napkin, run your luxury, and we'll provide their rest. Very simple, almost dumbly simple piece of music in the style of like, thank heaven for little girls, whatever. But it's it's a perfect bed for Howard's Howard Ashford's brilliant lyrics to bounce off of. So you have again, you have the classical, you have the the, the French musical. Um, with with Beauty and the Beast, you have really. I was thinking time passage. 
transcendent in its basic tone. Now, as far as the prologue, interesting story, um, we had, with every movie, you have temp music. So you have, uh, the director will have music that's taken from another source to put under a scene. They used Sanson's Carnival of the Animals to underscore the prologue. And the Carnival of the Animal goes... I kept saying, okay, but I'll, I'd like to use something from the score, but they were stuck on that piece of music. And I was at the point where they would go, well, maybe we just put that piece of music in. I said, no, no. So then I, I, got, I said, okay, I got it. So all of those specific threads became the basic threads of the score. Um, and for me, with each project that I do, I want to create a world that, that from the very beginning, you're walking into a, a world conceptually um, that is unique. So the world, you walk into the world of Mermaid or Beauty or Aladdin, each one is a separate world. And I really try to keep, you know, these, I have these threads. <laughs> <laughs> that I weave into the score. Um, so amazing. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you, Sydney. Um, so next up, we have a question from Rachel Leveney. Hello, Rachel. Hi, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us. Um, Little Shop of Horrors is actually the musical that made me want to study production arts. So Yay. I'm very, very grateful for that. Like so many of your amazing works, Aladdin has been adapted from animation to stage show to live action movie. So can you tell us about the musical evolution from its origin to becoming a Guy Ritchie film version and how much of the Aladdin musical DNA remain the same? Well, uh, the, um, it's, uh, I think almost more than any other project, Aladdin has been through so many twists and turns. Our first, Howard's and my first approach to Aladdin was, first of all, very much the Hollywood view of the mysterious East. So if you think of the early Hope Crosby, Bob Hope and, and Big Crosby road pictures, like the road to Morocco, it's like a buddy picture um, where they're taking an adventure and they're going on this adventure together. And initially, uh, Aladdin really was a buddy picture. It was Aladdin and his buddies, Babcock, Omar, and Kasim. And Jasmine was just kind of a love interest. Um, and that's, it remained that way for, for quite a while. And then Howard was ill with, as everyone knows, you know, he was HIV positive and then had AIDS. And nobody wanted to trouble him with what they were going through dramaturgically, but a decision was made that we wanted they they wanted it to be much more of a romance and not a buddy picture thus a lot of materials slid off the table and enter a new collaboration with tim rice and we had we kept friend like me um uh, arabian nights um uh, oh a uh, prince ali um from the original score 
And um, we had to cut Proud of Your Boy because it was no longer a mother. And we had to cut uh, um, uh, Babcock, Omar, Aladdin, Kasim because they weren't, they weren't the buddies. And so instead of having that ballad, we had the, the Magic Carpet Ride song, which Howard and I had wanted to write, but Howard was gone by then. So Tim Rice and I wrote A Whole New World. Um, I mean, there's so many stories that we, I could go on for an hour with each of these songs. Oh, God knows what happened. Anyway, so that score became a blend of two collaborations and, and the journey from this buddy picture to being a romance. Then we come to the stage. When I came to the stage, I really wanted to be able to re-insert as much of the material that Howard and I wrote as possible. Oh, yeah. So when Tim came in, we wrote One Jump Ahead, which was very much in the Ashman style, and A Whole New World, which was very much in the in this new Mencken-Rice collaboration. Um, for the move for the for the Broadway show, um, it, it it was you know I re, again wanted to bring back as much of the material that Howard, Howard and I had written as possible, um, and so Ch Chad Beglin gave an adaptation that allowed a, a rewritten um, a, a full Arabian Nights, which we had written for the original movie, was a very big long Arabian Nights, and of course. It was cut down. Now it was back full again. Um, and and some new songs actually with lyrics by Chad Beglin. <laughs> then when it was decided to become a, a live action musical, really the Guy Ritchie version went back to the original movie, really kind of hopped over the work that was done for the Broadway show um, and wanted to um, really increase the pop elements. And so I was teamed with this team of, of Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, who wrote Greatest Showman and, and, and Dear Evan Hansen and um, mm -hmm. so many other things. And so he, we wrote a bunch of songs. The, the one that remained was Speechless. Um, in all of these cases, and in every case with a, with a project, when it gets adapted for another form, you're kind of taking it apart and putting it back together again to fit the new form, first of all, in terms of the architecture of the storytelling. Uh, but also you're, you're dealing with new collaborations, especially new directors. And in each case, the directors are, are going to be very influential in what they want to see there. So, you know, you're always, uh, you know, back to being a, a, a collaborator with new people. And it's a long answer. I'm sorry. I, it's. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was amazing. You're welcome. Thank you, Rachel. Don't worry about the long answers. I think oh, I could have gone on so much longer. I could tell. I mean, anyway. I think half of everyone here, when we we are mesmerised when you talk and when you play the piano, we we are all loving. I'll it, tell so. you this. Then I'll tell you this little nugget. So when I was working with, I knew I was going over to meet with Tim, Sir Tim, in London. So I I sent him three pieces of music. I sent him the music for a, a Jafar song called Why Me, which di didn't make it into the movie, but it is, uh, it's around, people can hear that. that. It was a wonderful song, um, but we didn't need it. Uh, One Jump Ahead, which was the Marketplace song, which was very much in the style of the vaudeville kind of Hollywood style that Howard Knight had created. 
for, for the early part, and then A Home in the World. But I sent him a piece of music. I said, I have to send him these pieces of music. Uh, so I sent him uh, a dummy lyric that said, The world at my feet. Da, 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 da. Um, and, and Tim, when I got there, very wisely had decided that that really reference defeat maybe wasn't the best thing to have in the title for a love song for a Disney movie. Anyway, that's Thank you very much. a little trivia for you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so our next question is uh, from Benjamin. Hi. Uh, hello. Hi, it's Benjamin. such an honor to be able to talk to you. Um, I'm such a big fan of all your work and I just memorize mesmerizing honestly I think Disney's such an escape for people um, I wanted to ask you about Howard um, someone who just I think just such an incredible lyricist and all the writing that he's done and worked with so closely I mean um, it was what, 30 years ago to this very month 1991 he passed away sadly um, I wanted to ask you about how you first met and what it was like to work with him and of course that very bittersweet moment that when you first won your Oscar and you found out he wasn't well at all. Sorry to be a bit of a downer, but it's more of a... No, it's fine, it's fine. Um, I was exclusively a composer lyricist. I was, I was doing both. And I get a call from my, actually my friend, Maury Yeston. Maury Yeston, you may know, was the, is the composer lyricist of Nine and the musical of Titanic um, and Grand Hotel. And Maury called me up and he goes, Alan, it's Maury. And we're, you know, uh, that's, that's, what, that's what he sounds like. But you, <laughs> this, this is guy Howard Ashman, and he he, he wants he's looking for a collaborator to work on of a, a musical adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's novella God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. Now I was a huge Vonnegut fan, and uh, I loved his, his his. I I wanted to jump at doing this. He said, but Howard wants to write the lyrics. And he's never written lyrics before, but I thought, okay, all right. I mean, also Howard had his own theater. He also was a book writer, but I said, I'll meet with him. So I met with Howard um, and um, he was sort of suspicious because he was basically an off-Broadway guy and off-off-Broadway guy. And because he saw me as kind of sort of more inside, um, but we got past, you know the tentativeness very quickly i very quickly found out that we both loved um the same kinds of music that he was brilliant um at knowing how to use music in telling a story both structurally and in the choice of the styles of music um so that's you know so we off that collaboration we then went on to, to um to write, uh, obviously, a Little Shop of Horrors and then Little Mermaid. And, um, Howard, you know, again, you're blessed with a lyricist, book writer, um, and a director who knew exactly what he wanted. Um, and um, if he had lived, it's just no telling what what he would have done and what, and what we would have done. Um, and he did keep it a secret. He, he he did not want people to know that he was suffering from AIDS because, you know, in those days, as maybe even now, but certainly in those days, that was a career killer. Nobody wanted to be near you. Um, 
and I remember he, I was there, I was with him the day he found out he was sick. I didn't know that, that he found out that day because we were doing a big event at the 92nd Street Y in New York. If people are interested, there's a documentary that came out. It's on Disney yeah. Plus called Howard. Um, and a lot about him and about all of this is, is in there. Um, but on the night of the Oscars for Little Mermaid, um, we got the go at the governor's ball. We're sitting with all the Oscars, and Howard said, "I'm so happy. So this is so great." And he said, "Look, when we get back to New York, we have to have a talk." I said, what? What could? You know, what? Could, just one, two, three Oscars between us. What? Not not tonight. But when we get back, we have to have a talk. And so you know, I was on pins and needles. Get back to New York. Go, go up to his the house he was renting. And I walk in and he says, well, you know, I'm sick. Um, and, and it was just like a million dominoes just went because all these things I had questions about went, oh my God. And immediately, you know, if, if when somebody is, has, is HIV and is symptomatic, then at least they weren't gonna last long. And from that point forward, in less than a year, Howard lost everything, couldn't speak, um, all of everything was just one by one was just breaking down um and it was devastating it was devastating but we you know we finished writing beauty and the beast you know in that state um he was um you know we did we wrote prince ali i wrote it in the hospital in a hospital saint saint vincent's hospital in new york on his hospital bed bringing his keyboard um yeah it was uh and you know, the story, even though we both, we're really a, about letting characters and story come through us, we're a conduit. We're not putting ourselves onto it. Still, you can't separate the drama and emotion of what was happening in our lives from what came through us at that time. I think it contributed to the power of it. It was, his, his work is so incredible. I wanted to be a, a little bit cheeky. Could I ask to see the Oscar? or the Oscars that you have? Well, there's a whole bunch, there's eight of them, which I, 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 this is wired internet in this laptop, so I can't turn this to show you, but I will show you one. Uh, oh my goodness. What is this one for? Uh, this one is for, can you read it? I can't even read it. What does it say? Oh, I, um, Academy Award for Best Original Song with Stephen Schwartz for some- Oh, uh, Colors uh, of the Wind. Colors of the Wind, yeah. But they all look the same, they're, you know, they're, yeah. they're all the same. <laughs> so this is an Oscar. This, I want, we, 11 Grammys. This one though was Song of the Year and people were, they were shocked. They, they no one expected us to win. And in fact, they didn't even have the song performed on the Grammys because nobody thought it was going to happen. And, we won, oh uh, and this is of course for a whole new world, um, song of the year. But your little egot table at the back. <laughs> this, oh no, well, I'm gonna wait on this. Wait a second. <laughs> Here's the Emmy that allowed me to have my egot, and this was for for the uh, Tangled TV series. Now. The night of the Oscars, 
for um, for Beauty and the Beast, I go backstage to the press room. Having we were nominated, I got five five nominations. I had four, three three song and score, um, and I'd won two. Uh, it was a big night, uh, and I go back to the press room, and somebody shouts from the back, "How does it feel to win worst song of the year?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, you won the Razzie." Little did I know there actually was a Razzie Award. I got it years later. I had it delivered to me. It's so tacky, it actually fell apart. So there's a bunch of the, the little raspberries are sitting at the edge here. This is the Razzie for worst song of the year from Newsies for the song High Times, Hard Times. Remember Anne Margaret on the swing? Oh, yeah. High Times. Fast forward, I don't know how many years, 32 years, I don't know how, how many. And I won my Tony Award for best score for Newsies. Go figure. So that's a little of a few of the awards. Um, and I feel very humbled that I have those awards. And um, there they are. I'm very humbled in your presence. It's just, just to be here. Well, We're all so humble. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Benjamin. Um, so our next question is somebody very eager. This is Tyre. Hello again. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? How are you feeling? No, never I'm mind. better, thank you. <laughs> um, so my original question uh, was supposed to be about songs that kind of got left out of films, but you've already answered that, so I'm going to change my question around. Oh, there's a lot that were left out of <laughs> Yes. So one song that to me, I, I just cannot fathom how this song wasn't in the film was uh, Someday from Hunchback. Especially nowadays, I feel like it. I every time I listen to it, I cry for a different reason, and it, it gives so much meaning now. Um, and in general, just about Hunchback, I know that you and Stephen Schwartz kind of remade it to a musical, to more of a musical, and not the movie. And then it was on in Germany quite a lot, and in San Diego, but it was never in Broadway or West End. So when is that happening? Because I want to be Esmeralda. So. Oh. I can see that. <laughs> um. I don't know. It's it's it is playing all around the world. Yes, and it's, um, I'd love it if it was on stage, um, you know, in London. First of all, um, there is the, the Disney factor. Disney, there's so many. I mean, first of all, we have Hercules now, which we did in Central Park, you know, uh, just before the pandemic hit, um, and and we want to bring that to Broadway. Disney is does not want to simply flood the market with all those shows. So when I don't know, it's, it's very much out of my hands. I'm, I mean, I, I'm in love with the safe musical of, of Hunchback that we created and we did the La Jolla and then Paper Mill. Um, uh, and I think there's a few reasons it didn't come to Broadway. I, the critics gave it a hard time because I think they have a hard time marrying the concept of Disney with something that hmm, um, impassioned and dark and 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 uh, nuanced, uh, if if you will. Um, so I don't know. I don't know when it will it will happen, but I I I I, do, I believe it will, and. Um, you know, I'm really thrilled with that. Now, as far as Someday, Someday is huge in the stage show. And it was over the end credits of, of Hunchback. Um, 
it was really just a matter of one too many, too many ballots, number one, and also this time factor. You know, it's just that's a big thing. You know, I if you work in films, I I'll, I will watch a lot of films. You know, because I'm an Academy member. And I'll see when, oh, I can tell what happened there. They had to make a cut because of time. And that time is a big factor in movies. So sometimes things get cut. We lost in the, you know, in the second act of Little Shop of Horrors, we had a song called Will Up Tomorrow, which was a beautiful ballad. But, you know, Howard wisely said, we don't have the license to have both Suddenly Seymour and Will Up Tomorrow. And we just cut it. All, we, all that's left is the very end when they said, don't feed the plants. We'll have tomorrow. Don't feed. That's all that remains of it. A little, a little wink. Um, so I always tell, you know, young artists, don't ever, ever, ever fall in love with your own work. Always be ready to cut things. Don't, don't allow yourself to go, oh, we can't, we can't lose that. No, you can lose anything. You can. And because what's most important is the overall piece and the overall work. Amazing. Can you, would you mind playing us a bit of Someday, maybe? Someday, when we are wiser, when the world's over, when we have learned, someday, I pray we may yet live the living Thank you yeah, so much for that. It's a goodie. It's a goodie. And, and, and have you seen the stage show? I haven't had a chance to, no. Have you heard the, the cast album? I've heard it too many times for me to even count from beginning to end. That's good. <laughs> All right. Well, th thank you for that question. Thanks for your interest and, and feel better. I know thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Taya. I think. Oh, when you play, it's, it's literally incredible for um, absolutely everyone. I'd say that one song that I uh, heard was Desert Moon from Aladdin, uh, which when you hear it, it's just, it's absolutely incredible. Um, and it is a shame that it got cut, but as you said, sometimes decisions have to be made. Yeah, um, again, yes, it's a matter of space and time, yeah. Yeah, so our next question is from Keely. Keely. Hi, Alan. Thanks for talking to us all. It's just been magical, kind of swept up into your world. Um, but talking about how you form these worlds, has technology changed a lot since you started? I know digital technology and yeah. music production has probably transformed. Um, and does it help you create more with kind of orchestrations? Are there tools that you have now that you wish you had then? Um, and how has like remote technology allowed you to keep working during the pandemic? I mean, the answer to all your questions is yes, yes, yes. Technology is a great tool. Um, and if, remember, I'm an old school writer, so I will use a technology as a tool, but I, I, I don't want the technology to do the writing for me. Sometimes you could have a sound that has a pattern to it and you sort of hold on your finger and it plays a pattern and you write on top of that. And sometimes it's great, but you know, it's, you want to still play the piano and write, you know, 
uh, as you would on a piano. When I started, um, it was tape recorders. We had, um, you know, we didn't even have handheld tape recorders when I started. When I started, it was reel-to-reel recorders with a big clunky mic. Um, before that, it was literally writing, writing notes. Um, then with the, you know, with the uh, Walkman uh, recorders, you know, the cassettes. Um, then I remember for a brief time there was um, mini discs, they called them, and just go through all these different, you know, kinds of mediums. And then, of course, now I have my studio, so I can write on any instrument imaginable um, and then create an arrangement, send that arrangement with all the tracks to my musical director or my arranger will take that it's like a blueprint and then they will take it to the next step um and and the um the flexibility that i have with all this di digital technology in terms of midi where you're playing the instruments or digital audio where you're recording your voice and you can make immense alterations in your in your voice you can obviously tune it you can also i could turn myself into a sounding like a five-year-old girl or i could turn myself into sounding like a, a bass um i can you know all, all the things you can do are, are just so magical and wonderful um and it's it's a different world now with all this technology i happen to love it um but you have to be good at it and you have to you know be able to control it and that takes a lot of a lot of you know hands-on i am i work with a program called it's called Digital Performer, which is not the cutting edge for your generation really is, is I think, logic. And people work a lot with logic. It's very similar, but, um, and you're able to create an entire arrangement or, or film underscore all from your, um, from your home studio. And then as far as uh, Zoom technology, uh, it's really good. the 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 only downside is you can't really do a a reading of a show where people are singing live and speaking lines and talking to each other and he and having an accompaniment with it when they're all in different locations. The technology is not up to that. Um, so that's I miss that. I have I have number of musicals that are ready to go into readings. Um, but it really is not a very satisfactory uh, option to have it be a Zoom reading. Other than that, it's kind of great. Well, it's so exciting to hear that you've got so much coming up. And oh, I have a lot Okay, so I have um, the sequel to Enchanted, which is actually filming now. In It's, it's in pre-production, but it's going to start filming very soon. It's in, in Dublin. Little Mermaid is now filming in London new animated called Spellbound, we're working on it. They're, they're working in, uh, in um, Los Angeles um, and, and San Francisco, and I'm working from here on that. Stage musical of um, uh, Night at the Museum, the, the stage musical of Hercules, where we're now doing the Broadway version of that that we had done in Central Park. A new uh, stage musical of Animal Farm. Um, 
which is a transatlantic team. Um, and oh, a, a prequel to Beauty and the Beast that's going to be on Disney Plus um, with Josh Gad and Luke Evans doing the backstory of LeFou and Gaston. So there's a lot on my plate. It's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thank you, Keely. Um, so straight on to our next question. It's from Levy. Levy. Hey, Alan. Hi. <laughs> um, thank you so much for speaking to us. I could talk to you for days about every measure in your school. Um, it's really interesting to hear how they came about. Um, so, of course, the world of new musical theatre writing has changed so much since you wrote Mr. Rosewater and everything kind of started. Um, nowadays, there are so many institutes and courses. You, of course, yourself were part of BMI, but there's now every university has a musical theatre writing program. Um, I myself got into the musical theatre writing program at Tisch at NYU. Um, and I guess just I have a couple of questions on what's your advice for coming up as a musical theatre writer nowadays? And with such a large financial commitment to go study the school like Tisch, is it worth it? Are there or are there other avenues? Yes, yes. Um, I, I don't know who told me this. You know, the years that you spend like going to, going to college is a huge opportunity and privilege. Um, and it's, yes, it's to learn. It's also, frankly, a good opportunity to have a four-year identity crisis. Um, you know, I mean, because you you go to college and you want to check things out. You want to find yourself. Um, you don't have to know exactly what you want to do. You don't have to feel pressured to go, I, I said this is my major and I'm going to do this. Because um, I'm, I'm of the belief that the thing that you're passionate about doing every day, that's the thing you should be doing. Um, Oh, advice. You're, you're a composer and lyricist? What are, what uh, are you? Just mainly a composer, yeah, and a musical director. Okay. Um, don't f ever fall in love with your own work. Um, get out of your own way. Uh, you know, mu I, I am a very voc musical vocabulary driven composer. So my view is you, your your choice of music for a scene um, should be specific enough so you almost don't have to hear the lyrics to know what is being stated, both tonally and, and how the scene is moving forward. Um, obviously the lyrics are important, but, but I believe in very specific musical palettes that comment on the story that let you know, you know, um, what the author's point of view is. So, um, you know, maybe you're being broadly satirical, maybe you're being dead on serious, um, uh, you know, making the genie sing like Fats Waller is certainly not something you come, that comes out of the Middle East. That came out of the description of the genie of the, of the ring, actually, not the lamp, being black and, and having an earring like a hipster. And, I loved Fat. I loved Fats Waller growing up. With like my dad played at the piano, and I thought, wouldn't that be a lot of fun to have him sing like you know, Old Man Mose? Oh yeah, I do believe. Oh, which you know that kind of style found its way into wow. Oh my. Um, don't write anything until you know the entire arc of the story you're going to tell. Make sure you have a unique world 
that is the world of your show. Um, musicals are not just about na narrative. In fact, musicals are not even necessarily a narrative form. In, in many ways, um, it's a different gestalt entirely. It's, a, it's really taking you into a world and simplifying the arc and the journey to, so that it can be told through songs, really riding on the most primal urges and those primal moments of that story. Um, you know, I, I lose patience with shows that are too just recitative driven, not that there aren't could be wonderful, but it's taking you into that world and you can do both. So uh, look for the big concept for anything you write. Always when you write a song or a show at the earliest moment, you want someone listening to that, to the musical or to that individual song moment to go, Oh, I get it. I get it. I get what you're doing. You're doing a wink at this or, but you're taking people on a ride and you gotta be very clear about it. Um, you know, being um, mysterious in musicals is not necessarily your strong suit. There's a lot of nuance in the music, but you want to be very clear in your intentions and never, ever, ever be afraid to throw something out. You can always get it back. I don't know what else. I can tell you what restaurants, you know, are good downtown Manhattan, but uh, you'll find that out for yourself. Tish is nice. It's a, it's a, it's a good area. NYU is uh, a great school and have a great time. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've been asked to, could you play us some Fats Waller um, that you remember? Uh, old man, uh, old man Moe's, oh yeah, I do believe, oh yeah, old man Moe's, oh yeah, old man Moe's is dead, old man Moe's kicked the bucket, bark, bucket, bark, bark, bucket, at which point I was waiting. That was supposed to be a trumpet. I was just imitating a trumpet. Well, Alabama had them 40 thieves. She had Rosalie and a thousand tails. And this little you in luck cause up your sleeve. You got a friend and that never fails. Got some power in your corner now. Heavy ammunition in your camp. You got some punch possessed. You know who in house. All you got to do is rub that lamp. And I'll sing this song last to us. Will your pleasure be? Thank you so, so, so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Davi. Um, so our next question is from Maya from Liverpool. Maya. Hi. Hi, Maya. Hi, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Um, so you've worked with so many incredible lyricists, including David Zippel, Tim mm. Rice, Stephen Schwartz, and of course, Howard Ashman. What is the secret and what are your tips for a successful collaboration? And does each new partner bring you something different that leaves an imprint in your future work? Yeah, I mean, each, each lyricist have, you know, their personalities come through in how they, as storytellers or, and, as, and how they interpret characters. Um, you know, the, the marriage of Tim Rice's lyrics and Howard Ashman's in Aladdin and in the stage musical of Beauty and the Beast. That's a miracle that those marry. I, I guess I'm, you know, I become the fulcrum in that case, um, but they could not work differently, you know. Um, 
whenever possible. I like to work in the room with my lyricists. Um, so I have the instant feedback from them. And then we, we can then communicate um, in a very fluid way and make, I'll throw it out, throw it out. Uh, you like that? Okay, good. So I want to fit it onto the, the taste of that lyricist. Uh, my, most, my latest collaboration has been Lin-Manuel Miranda who I knew as a, as a little kid, because he grew up loving Little Mermaid. He went to, actually went to school with my niece. Um, and then he became Lin-Manuel Miranda. And he and I wrote new songs for Mermaid. That, we had so much fun working together. But every, you have to find the, um, first of all, you have to check your ego at the door. Just check it at the door. Um, and, um, uh, be very be very flexible to taking on from your collaborator um and you know that's where you have to hone your gifts to the point where you can go into a new area and not be afraid to stumble a bit um and i'm not afraid so that's why i've been able to work with so many lyricists i'm i'm, I'm sort of an open book that way creatively um I was very influenced by the style of Pasek and Paul in writing Speechless. Um, so it's it's a blessing anytime you have a new a new uh, lyricist. That Glenn Slater, Jack Feldman, the other uh, ones you didn't mention. I mean, there's just so many of them. Um, and yes, they're all different and precious. And but what what I you know what I need from any of them is to is to let the character sing, let the character come through. You know, we don't, I don't, don't be showing off your lyric chops. You know, it, it's, you know, if, unless the character justifies it. Um, certainly, I, I, lyric chops meaning it's not about you and it's not about me. It's a, always about the result. So each collaboration, is, a, is an amazing blessing. And, you know, in collaboration with a book writer is a blessing and, and with a director, with a choreographer, with anyone. Collaboration is, is huge um, in creating diversity in your career. Thank you. Thank you, Maya, for your question. We have another question from Carrie. Hello, Carrie, where are you? Hi. Carrie? Hi. <laughs> Hi, sorry, I'm a little nervous talking to you. Um, before I ask my question, I just want to let you know that um, you've pretty much been like, oh, I know everyone's like, oh, you've brought everyone's like life, but your contribution to my life is that I think part of your world probably triggered it, but the animation as well, like everything, it's the reason why I chose to do animation at university and get a degree in oh, it. Wonderful yeah i did i want to work for uh, i i couldn't i couldn't lich you can see i'm wearing oh, that's a, oh yeah i i didn't, I didn't see that <laughs> you can see my mickey mouse gloves <laughs> yeah well um let them know yeah no also i sang part of your world at a jowdy b talent show and i actually won the actually won the talent show singing part of your world congratulations here okay let's hear it i was like 13. oh my god what <laughs> Okay, no, I, never mind. Never mind. Ask me your question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I would love to sing and collab with you. Oh my god. Okay, well. Um, 
Yeah, but um, my question is, um, so you were speaking of co uh, collaborations, um, working with Lin-Manuel Miranda um, on the new live action version of The Little Mermaid. Um, how is it going and will we see um, rapping and hip hop singing? A little bit. Creatures? A little bit, yeah, yeah. There's one song that's, there's certain songs that are much more Mencken and Lynn kind of diving into the Mencken waters. Mm -hmm. And there's one, there's a couple of songs where I'm diving into to the Lin-Manuel uh, waters. Um, um, and yeah, it's, he's a really delightful guy to work with. Yeah, uh, I binge watched Hamilton and I think I know every lyric to the majority of the songs. It's so good. Yeah, he's a he's a he's, he's a menschy, yeah. really good guy, um, and uh, really smart. And I mean, he was intimidated because he was, ah, you know, he hasn't worked necessarily in the style that I write in, um, and I was intimidated. And uh, you know, it was fun. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I I wish I could play you something. I can't. I can't. I know. But it is, yes, there's five five new songs that we wrote. Brilliant. Also, can I quickly be cheeky as well? Can I ask if could you play "Go the Distance"? Just a bit of "Go the Distance." I just—it's my favorite, one of my favorite songs. I have often dreamed of a far-off place where heroes welcome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Carrie. Um, so quickly, while we were talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda, I watched a video some time ago about how he describes he wrote the music for Hamilton, or some of it at least, while on a train to see his family. So is it true that inspiration for music and songs can come literally from oh. anywhere? Yeah, he's, in fact, he sent one of, the, one of the early demos for one of our songs, I sent him a track. He actually went into the bathroom on the Amtrak crane and recorded his vocal, so you hear the and he learns uh, singing. What he, how he imagined the, uh, the lyric to go. Um, yeah, I mean, I prefer to do it in the studio, all things being equal. Um, and as far as inspiration, I generally will. I'll schedule my inspiration. You know, at, at this point in my life, I'll go. Okay, you know. I'll, I'll have inspiration tomorrow morning at, at you know, 10.30 when I walk into the studio and until then, but you know, there are times where if, if, you, if there's a lot of pressure, you know, sometimes some, it'll, it still happens. You'll bolt up middle of the night and go, oh, <laughs> that's what I gotta do. Um, yeah. But generally you schedule your inspiration and you know, it's like, a, it's a job. Yeah, so we have, uh... Uh, about three more questions from the audience really quickly or not very quickly uh, depends on how much you want to answer um so we have the next question from zara zara hi alan hi 
Uh, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. It's a real privilege. Uh, so my question is about Enchanted. So unlike the old Hollywood musicals, these days um, randomly bursting into song in the middle of movies is much less common. But in the movie Enchanted, you turned it like all around. Can you tell us about bringing fantasy in re into reality and, and making songs like That's How You Know feel spontaneous in the real world? Yeah, well, it's Enchanted it made it easy because you have a, a shared knowledge that, that she is an animated ingenue. So she breaks into song. Um, you know, anybody who goes to the top of the movie and goes, I don't get, yeah, wait, 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 she's an animation, I don't get that. Well then, <laughs> turn off the movie and don't watch it. But for everybody else, it's right there. It's, it's pure fertilizer for growing these, these um, musical theater moments. Um, Giselle has a spell put on her. She ends up in Times Square and she's, you have the perfect situation where people around her are going, what are you doing? And she's singing. So we are enlisted in her journey so passionately. Um, and that's so much fun. Yeah, Enchanted was one of the best ideas ever. Uh, best premises ever for, you know, for a Disney uh, musical that character going from animation into the real world. Um, she, there she is in Central Park and she's breaking into song and and Robert, the character of Robert, Patrick Dempsey is completely embarrassed. What better way could you have for us to then completely be enlisted with her in singing that song? Because we want to protect her because she's got this open heart in a world that's cynical. We love that. A happy working song, you know, she wants to sing a, a, a song where the, you know, with the, the little doves and, and cute little, little mice or whatever will, will help her clean the cabin. But instead, of course, it's rats and, and pigeons and um, God knows what else. And it's, it's a funny, funny idea. Um, so yes, it, those figuring out again, the world of the musical that you're in and how it can be told through song is everything. Mm -hmm. And is there, is there anything else about the Enchanted sequel that you could let us know about? It's really good. It's <laughs> really good. Um, I don't think I'm allowed. It's, it's filming. And uh, okay, you're going to see a lot, a lot, you know, Amy, Amy Adams is in it. Patrick's in it. Um, a lot of, you know, Adina Menzel is in it. Um, the characters that you know, originally, uh, um, Jimmy Marsden, they're, they're in it. Well, I'm very excited for it. And if you don't mind, would you be able to play That's How She Knows? That's how you know. Yeah. How does she know that you love her? Bye. 
thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, uh, Zara. And our next question is from Josh. Josh. Hi, um, so I'm a big fan of the MCU, um, particularly so Star Spangled Man from Captain America. Oh my God. Um, the first Avenger movie. Uh, it feels yeah. Go ahead. It feels so sort of of the time, um, and it's a it's a very musical nod to quite a patriotic era. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about that sort of what what brief? Well, the the movie? assignment was to write a USO song, and you know the USO uh, so, tradition. I go back to to. If you go to YouTube to put a, put an Irving Berlin USO, and he's standing there going, you know, uh, you're in the in the army now. You're not, da, 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 da. Um, it's there's this there's a we we associate USO with the World War II really um, numbers. Now it was USO obviously beyond that, but I really wanted to draw on that period so. Um, Star Spangled Man was written in that style. Um, da, 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 da. Again, um, as simple and basic and clear musically as I could be, and allow David Zippel's lyrics to just, you know, pop off that. And the music does not need to call attention to itself. All it needs to do is just establish a groundwork um, for we, so we know what the tone is. We know what the what the era that we're winking at is. What the side we're winking at, and then. That, that you know that number, it was yeah it was it was a gas, those kinds of assignments that <laughs> I did this, this song for Sausage Party. You guys don't remember Sausage Party? That was a trip, working with with um, Seth Rogen and all of his friends and writing that um, that crazy thing. Um, you know, it, it, in that case, I was kind of the joke. Like oh we got Mencken a Mencken piece of music in, in this clearly filthy, um, but but really good-hearted story. Um, so I, I love those assignments. Josh, anything else? I I know. Did you want me to sing the whole song? I I, I can't remember the lyrics. Thank you, Josh. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Josh. Um, so our final audience question is coming from Louis. Hi. Um, so I know you played it a couple of minutes ago, but Hercules is one of my favourite films, and I love the song "I Can Go the Distance." It's just the way that it, like, the song grows in strength from like you've got the doubting Hercules, and it just becomes this big anthem. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the journey of the song and how you're okay, able I'll to tell you change it. <laughs> yeah. When I took on Hercules. I first thought, okay, the style of this would be like, like classical Greece, right? So it'd be like Candide. I, you know, you know, Bernstein's Candide. You guys come out of musical theater, some of you. Very, um, and we we actually wrote a song for Hercules. The initial one went um, 
He sees this shooting star and he says, I'm just like that shooting star. And it was this beautiful ballad. We recorded it fully with a big dandy true orchestration and Roger Bart singing it. It was gorgeous. And then the notes came in, and it was too soft, too soft in emotion. It was, we needed something more muscular um, and more about his determination, not so much about his vulnerability. Um, so that led to very heroic, like a, like a fanfare. So much more. Um, heroic and muscular, and that ended up being the right, the right thing. When we did um, for Tangle, I see the light. I must have written ten songs to try to go. What do you guys want? What do we want for this moment? Do you want a big emotional moment? Do you want a little intimate moment? Do you want something that's dreamy? Do we want something that's that's? I mean, what, so many ways to skin that cat. We ended up with the, um, you know, very simple and very gentle. And all the other songs we wrote um, were just as good, just weren't right for that moment. So, that, you know, we just toss them out and, you know, play them and you know, some trivia cup concert or something someday. Thank you, Louis, for your question. Um, so then back to me for the final uh, three questions. So the first is we always ask our guests this question. What is next for you, Alan? I, you've mentioned earlier about uh, all the new things that you're writing. Um, and you mentioned the Gaston and LeFou spin-off that is currently in the works for Disney Plus. So right. can you anything about uh, what you have in the pipeline waiting for us? You mentioned it briefly, but is there any other details you can let us know? Not really. Um, it's premature to give details in terms of storyline. Um, we have a great creative team. Um, Eddie Kitsis and Adam Horowitz and Josh Gad are all writers on this and producers on this. And Glenn Slater and I are writing the songs. Um, I believe it's going to be six episodes. We're working on the pilot episode right now. I just delivered, a, we just delivered a new song. In fact, tomorrow we have a meeting to discuss that song. Um, and um, it, it's, it's less so than ever before. I can really be specific about 
about agendas or deadlines because everybody's avoiding specific deadlines, A, because of the pandemic, and also, frankly, because everything's going into streaming as opposed to opening in theaters, somehow I think that also changes some of the calculation in terms of scheduling. Um, so uh, we're going, you know, at working as hard and as fast as we can, but I'm juggling the, the beauty prequel, which I, I think the dummy title at the moment is Little Town, Spellbound, the new animated with John Lasseter's new company, Skydance. Um, uh, Disenchanted, which basically is done, but still I'm writing the score, so it's, and, and, and Mermaid both. So my involvement will be um, until the you know, release of those. Um, a, uh, a new animated that I can't really talk, it's a really good story. I'm waiting to see how that's gonna work out, plus another movie. So it's a whole bunch of film projects and then um, I'm doing a project with my Newsies team, Harvey Firestein and Jack Feldman, uh, based on a true story, is called Greetings from Niagara Falls. Um, as I said, I'm doing um, Night at the Museum is done, pretty much, ready for, now for our readings and then to go into production. It's a big, obviously a big uh, musical. Um, I'm very excited about that. Very excited about the Hercules musical. Um, I've had the people would like us to do a Tangled musical, and I believe that will happen. Um, so there's just a ton of stuff in the pipeline that, um, you know, I like to work. And um, I'm, you know, I'm thrilled that the interest remains for all of these projects. So I expect there'll be a lot of output of, of material coming over the next, you know, years and decades. Knock on wood, I hope to stay healthy and be around for a long time. Definitely. And I think it's been pretty obvious tonight that we all appreciate all the work that you've done and continue to do. So we are all extremely excited for everything that you have uh, coming up that is currently in the pipeline. Um, so the penultimate question, these are unprecedented times and the physical, mental health, economic and environmental impacts may yet affect us all for some time to come. But do you have hope for the future? What positives do you think are going to come out of this pandemic? I have a lot. Of, I feel I have a lot of hope. Um, I mean, your generation is so creative and so full of of love and hope. Um, so you guys are you you guys have got to fashion an incredible world, and I want to be around to see some of it. Um, I'm. I'm also, I'm also enthusiastic about the new technologies that you can, yes, travel, but also work from your studio and, and have these kind of interactions. Um, I think you have a responsibility as well as should have hope, but the responsibility is keep the dream alive. Find the stories you want to tell um, fill them with, with hope, with emotion, with, um, with big imagery, um, keep that alive for the, for, you know, for your kids and the next generation. Um, that's, that's all of our jobs is 
to um, fill the world with as much love as possible. Um, that's, you know, the older you get, the more um, that's not just, you know, um, airy fairy, um, you know, nice thing to say. Um, our love, our compassion, our um, sharing stories, sharing our hearts with others is powerful, really powerful. And, um, I, I, you know, take it from me, I, you have one little moment here in this studio and, you know, I don't know how much later, all of a sudden I see it explode in the world. So you can make big dreams happen. Um, and all of that is in your hands. So I think people should feel really hopeful. I'm, I'm personally pleased about right now where we are in terms of our government in the, in the States. I, I hope it continues to move in the right direction. Um, but we we do live in a world that's, you know, that's divided and we have to have compassion for those who disagree with us, but always love and compassion. And it's going to be fine. I believe it's going to be fine. You know, what now, what is what going to be fine mean? <laughs> um, life is a miracle. Life is a miracle and we're in it and we should really feel wonderful about it. Definitely. So finally, the big question that we always ask our guests, we always ask our guests to nominate or ask another celebrity to be a future guest on our program and help entertain all the children and young people that are currently stuck at home. So if you have enjoyed tonight's experience, we very much hope that you have done. Is there anyone that you may be able to ask to join us? I know a guest that so many of our young audience would love to love for you to ask is Josh Gads. Do you think you might be able to persuade him? <laughs> I will definitely ask Josh. I don't, I can't promise anything because it's up to Josh to say, yeah, I'll do it. Um, but sure, I'll, uh, I'll pass it, the, 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 it on to Josh. Um, who else? Who else might you want to talk to? I don't know. You, you tell me. Um, well, so many you've worked with so many uh, incredible and amazing people over the years we could give you a long list of everyone that we would love you to help us get um so any help with josh would be incredible okay you i'm on it thank you we would also love stephen schwartz if you can get us in, get us uh, I just, just before that, i told stephen i was doing this so i sure you want stephen i'll get you stephen thank you very much so just before we let you go, we would love you to leave us with one final musical memory. And um, perhaps as we reflect on the last year of lockdown and we long to be, re be reunited with family and friends, could you play maybe just a few bars of Somewhere That's Green from Little Shop of Horrors? Oh. I know Seymour's the greatest, but I'm dating a semi-sadist. So I got a black eye in my arms and a cat. Seymour's a cutie. Well, if not, he's got inner beauty. And I dream of a place where we can be together as lads. A matchbox of our own. A fence of real chain link. 
much i think please god when we have summer camp i'm looking forward to an alan menkin medley that we're going to get from all of the fans who are watching this uh, this evening so thank you so much it's been an absolute honor and we simply can't thank you enough for joining us this evening and entertaining us all it was truly incredible um thank you so much for taking the time for all of our questions um and even explaining your answers through piano and song which has been an absolute privilege for all of us to listen to tonight and we will cherish it for many years to come. We've really loved hearing about your amazing life and career um, and also receiving some truly incredible advice. You really are an inspiration to so many people around the world. And today, as we've reflected on one year of JLGB Virtual, you really were the perfect guest. So on behalf of all the children, the young people and families watching, thank you once again. We wish you well, good luck with all that comes next. We can't wait to see the live action Little Mermaid soon, as well as everything else that you've got. Um, please stay safe, take care, and we all hope to see you again very soon. Thank you so much for listening to Jersey Virtual, We Are Live. Take care of yourselves and stay safe, and we shall see you again soon.